on why we're here today. Last year we scaled our marketing team pretty aggressively and we're in the middle of pivoting our strategy from lead to demand gen. And to ramp up the knowledge of our team, I'm setting up inspiration sessions with demand gen leaders. For the first one, I'm not going to lie, you were the number one on my hit list, Chris, to be honest. So I'm absolutely thrilled to introduce the one and only true hero of demand gen, Chris Walker. For those of you that don't know Chris, uh, Chris is the CEO of Refine Labs. Uh, with his company, he's building a new future for how B2B companies and revenue teams operate. He basically invented the term dark social over five years ago and hosts a weekly podcast called Revenue Vitals, which has over a million downloads. Great to have you, Chris. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? Hey, Anne. Thanks for having me. And hey, everyone, I can't see you all on the video, but it's really good to uh, be with you all today. A little bit about myself. I started as a B2C marketer. I built a couple of businesses on my own while I worked in B2B companies doing management consulting. And then I moved to venture-funded companies in 2017 to actually take a marketing manager role at that time. And basically saw inside of that company how reliant they were on outbound sales, how inefficient the go-to-market strategy was happening overall. If you looked at the data, pipeline velocity, win rate, cost of acquisition, I saw a bunch of things like that. And I put my, I've always done it. I've just put my CEO hat on and was like, what was the most important thing to solve in this company? It's how do we figure out how to do digital demand? So our sales team talks to people that want to buy right now. So we have shorter sales cycles, higher win rates, more sales productivity, more scalability in the business. And so I, I basically at that time, I, was, I remember the time I was flying home on a flight from Arizona coming out of a national sales meeting. I basically decided I'm going to bet my career on B2B marketing. And that was in 2017. I continued at that company for a while and showed a lot of great results in advance of their IPO. And then joined another venture funded company for a short period of time to lead marketing. And then I saw the same patterns that I saw in the other company over relying on sales, too much outbound, and realized that it wasn't just the one company I worked for or the second company that I worked for that struggled with these issues. It's almost every B2B company was struggling with the same issues um, using a old marketing and sales playbook where marketing is responsible for getting leads and sales is responsible for converting that into actual demand and then actually converting the demand into sales, which is highly inefficient with the way that buyers buy today. So I started my company in 2019. Today, we have more than 80 talented people that work here. We've worked with more than 200 high growth B2B companies over the past four years. During that time, my experience and my knowledge of the B2B industry, I think to be one of the most unique and expansive in the world right now. I've probably been in the most Salesforce instances for B2B companies out of anyone in the world in the past four years. I've seen data, I've seen what companies are doing that is great from like a RevOps and planning and attribution perspective. I've seen a lot of companies that are falling very far behind, don't know what things are working and what's not, don't know how to prove the ROI. I don't like the term prove ROI, but show demonstrate the ROI of the programs that they're running, be able to make good decisions, look at it as an entire engine where you have sales, you have marketing, you have other parts that go to market and look at it all together and say, how are we going to deploy this investment as a business leader to these different functions? How are we going to divide the investments? What programs are we going to run in order to drive optimal results for the overall business? I find 
a lot of B2B companies continue to be heavily skewed toward the sales resources. This is not across the board, but often not enough resources and not enough impact coming from marketing. So there's an overinvestment in the sales team and then the sales team, because there's an overinvestment and a lack of demand drives lower sales productivity. And we've run into a place where a lot of companies can't sustain their cost of acquisition given the overinvestment in sales and the low productivity in marketing. So this is something that I'm super passionate about. I'm also super passionate about getting B2B marketers to do a lot more exploration, a lot more experimentation, a lot more curiosity when they go into new programs. So step one is I got to figure out how am I going to build programs that drive repeatable results? A lot of places to start, Google Ads, conversion rate optimization, a lot of the things that everyone on this call knows and does. How do we get repeatable results from those programs and things where we can demonstrate ROI, we could invest more effort or money and get returns out? And then how do we think about new experiments that match how our customers buy today? How do we think about like Reddit is crushing for us right now in the experiments that we're running and most B2B marketers would never consider that right now. I've seen effective strategies run on Quora, obviously podcast, community, dark social. There's tons of opportunities out there for B2B buyers to better match how their customers and B2B revenue teams overall to match their go-to-market strategy for how buyers buy today. And so looking forward to uh, sharing some time with you. I appreciate you having me. I'm glad to be the first person in these inspiration sessions and looking forward to getting into some questions. Thanks. So yeah, a lot of questions came in up front already. I wanted to start with a first one. So what you just explained on having a heavy sales team relying on the leads that marketing bring in at Recruity, it started already a little bit different. We have a lot of inbound and a very spoiled sales team and not doing outbound actually already. But we also wanted to pivot to demand gen because we wanted to distinguish the buyers that are truly ready to buy today. And the first question that came in around that topic was from Anatoly, our head of revenue enablement. And his question is around how should marketing teams approach getting the C-level and other departments in a business like sales comfortable with demand gen metrics for success? And what are the main rookie mistakes to avoid when it comes to this? So when it comes to the metrics, there's basically two phases of this. One, we have to analyze and understand the current state. So being able to go and look at, here's the programs that we're running. It's a lead gen strategy. Here are the sources that we get leads. It's a lead gen strategy. So we have direct attribution inside of our CRM. We can see if it's coming from content syndication from this vendor or this vendor or this vendor, LinkedIn ads, Google ads, Facebook ads, affiliates, G2, things like that. So we can see where all of the trade shows, what all the different places, you can see where all the leads are coming through. And then you just look at progression to pipeline, progression to pipeline, progression to close one. You can measure the conversion from a lead to an opportunity. You can measure the conversion from a lead to an actual customer. You can calculate customer acquisition cost by channel. You can calculate pipeline velocity, win rate, ACV, all these different dynamics for each individual lead gen channel because it's literally a single channel lead gen strategy. And so then you can analyze the current state. You'd be able to tell then here are the things that we're doing that are working, that are driving revenue at an acceptable cost of acquisition. Here are the things that we know are not working because we've been able to measure them and it's not driving acceptable cost of acquisition or sales productivity. And then perhaps there's some things that we're doing that we don't have the appropriate measurement infrastructure to be actually understand. So things like that, if a company's trying community podcasts, organic social, non-direct response, paid social, a lot of these things, Oftentimes they're doing them, they think that they're working, they actually might be working, but the company's not able to effectively measure that and so they need us to, to set up new places to measure. 
I like the idea from there. What you'll probably find and what you probably find in your own data is that you're getting tons of leads from these lead gen places like content syndication, paid social, like I mentioned, and those leads are driving 10, 20% of the quote unquote marketing source revenue. And then you get about 80, 90% of the revenue is coming from someone that comes to your website and says, Hey, I want a free trial or Hey, I want to talk to your sales team about buying. And that's where a majority of the revenue comes. But all the effort and money is spent driving these leads that aren't closing. That's the typical pattern that we see in a lead gen strategy. So then you can just look and say, if we wanted to hit our revenue targets and grow by 50%, we can either just grow our free trial and demo requests by 150 people next year because we sell a high ACV product instead of getting 175,000 more leads through these programs. So by level setting to the company of we get the best sales productivity and pipeline velocity and a majority of the revenue through these types of conversions already, then what if we just modeled our growth model only off of these conversions, effectively adjusting the definition of an MQL? So that's affected uh, more or less what's happening right here to just have it be from sources that are shown to drive high sales productivity and revenue and strong win rates. And then when you make that switch on KPIs, then what happens is all of the effort and money spent on these transactional lead gen programs that don't convert at a high rate and waste a lot of sales and SDR time, marketers are no longer incentivized to do that. So all that effort and money and budget moves to how are we going to get 150 more demo requests this year, which is only like 10, 15 a month. You know what I mean? How are we going to go get more of these? And then uh, so budget shifting, focus is shifting. And now we're just focusing on driving this number. Then we install self-reported attribution. So we not only know that they're coming through a demo request that comes through organic, direct, branded, paid search. We know that. And we also know that they heard about us on a podcast. They heard about us through LinkedIn. They heard about us through a colleague or they use us at a different company and that they change jobs and they're bringing us in. So we get to understand all these dynamics of what is actually creating the demand and what's actually capturing the demand for the main source of revenue that we're trying to optimize for. And then you're able to take that massive amount of budget and effort from your team and then go and say, okay, buyers are saying that we're creating demand on LinkedIn through these types of colleagues and through these events. Let's go figure out how to partner with those events, sponsor the events, partner with these affiliates, and get our entire company to scale our organic LinkedIn strategy. Then you bring all those efforts, and then you're seeing downstream impact on demo requests that drive into pipeline at a high rate. And then you can also figure out on the capture demand side, okay, now we get 1.2% of website visitors convert into a free trial. How do we get that number to one? We have 100,000 visitors a month. How do we get that number to 1.5%? And you got some math, some conversion optimization, some testing going on on the capture demand side. And that's you basically center the company on the core metric that we're trying to drive is buyers coming to us that are saying they want to buy that convert into pipeline that our sales team wins at 25%. So we're aligned with sales team outcomes. And that's the metric that we should be shifting for. And then we have to set our leading indicators based on individual programs that are working, right? The leading indicators for our podcast is going to be different from LinkedIn, is going to be different from SEO. And so we need to be able to set leading indicators at the program level, not just website. What Website traffic can be a good indicator, but it's not a great indicator of what's working and what's not. Yeah, at the end of last year, we already knew we were going to, well, it's not a flip, uh, switch you flip, obviously, but we already knew we're going for a full-blown demand gen strategy as of this year. So we already imported self, uh, implemented self-reported attribution. 
we are currently looking at, okay, how to, all the data that comes in, it's a free field in a form, right? How do you do that with Refine Labs to structure that data that people say where their intent comes from? And how do you utilize it then in your programs? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the podcast, of course, is for you, maybe the, the main driver of your revenue. Yeah, podcast. So that's easy then, <laughs> but... We have a lot of referrals, for example, that people say referral. Exactly. Yeah, it's going to be different for every single business, how mature their programs are and their overall investment and go-to-market strategy. So it will be different. When it comes to self-reported attribution, I think the first company that we tested with this was ourselves, right? So like I set this up on our own website probably in May of 2021. And I didn't know what I was going to get, but I expected, hey, a bunch of people in sales calls are saying they love our podcast. And they heard of us on LinkedIn. So I was expecting that more p- people would say that. And then we started seeing people come in and say to Demand Gen Podcast, Revenue Vitals Podcast, your Demand Gen Live events, been following Chris on LinkedIn, see your other people team on LinkedIn. So we were getting all this information. And then we had the same issue in 2021. Like, how are we going to actually, when we look at the issue, it's like, how do we package this in a way that a B2B executive would be able to understand, trust, and use, right? So it's not only looking at ourselves, it's thinking about all, the, all our customers. And so the first thing that we did was we thought about mirroring it against the same way that companies do software-based attribution for capture demand. And so what happens is the person comes in, they write a text field. We built automation manually inside of marketing automation that would see, hey, the person said podcast or state of demand gen or revenue vitals or community or G2 or affiliates or search or colleague or referral. or So it was looking for all those different strings. And then the automation would then categorize it into the right place for podcast, social media, LinkedIn, et cetera. And then that field on the contact would then get transferred to the opportunity record when a deal was created. Our deals are automatically triggered. So when a person fills out the form on our website, they book a meeting. And then once they book a meeting, the op is already created. So all that data flows automatically into the opportunity. And then you are able to visualize that the self-reported attribution sources against pipeline and deal progression, not just against contacts attached to the deal. And so when we figured that out for ourselves, a lot of customers came to us and say, hey, we're analyzing in spreadsheets. Hey, like this is great insight, but how do we get the right data and decision making out of it? And so we, as of two weeks ago, released a native Salesforce application. So if you use Salesforce, then you can install the application and it'll automatically does all this type of automation in addition to a lot others, builds automatic like reporting and visualization so you can see it. And then the last thing that I'll add, which is sort of, I think, overlooked is that we have a automated Slack notification that gets pushed in whenever anyone fills this out that says name, title, company, company size, what tier of their target account they fall into, UTM source, self-reported attribution source, and everyone in the company can see all those notifications and see what do buyers say, especially when we can see, hey, CMO, perfect fit company, tier one account list says that they heard about us on a podcast and the whole company sees that. And then it's not just the marketing team being like, yeah, we're seeing this stuff. Then you got the CEO, you have the CFO, you have the people in customer success. That's a great form of internal marketing. And so being able to set that up too, so the whole company has visibility into what's actually happening on a daily basis, I think is a super overlooked part of this is part of it is getting the company to see on a recurring basis what's actually working for customers. Yeah, thanks. Very valuable. We're going to go over to the next question. It's from Xander, and he's our SEO well, wizard, I would say, for the doc region. Xander, uh, you would like to ask your question via video, so the floor is yours. 
Hey, Chris. Uh, great to have you. Hey, Xander. Good to meet you. Thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm an SEO at Recruity. So my question is uh, based around SEO. And I was wondering, what's your opinion? What skills should or does SEO need to level up or focus on uh, to have the best possible impact in a demand gen strategy? And also, how would you suggest to measure the impact of SEO within the demand gen strategy? Yeah, this is a super nuanced question. So I'll put it that way. Because part of my belief just interacting with buyers and things like that and seeing how companies do attribution is that SEO gets dramatically over the impact of SEO gets dramatically overreported based on attribution bias for the lower funnel conversion. And so and a lot of companies don't measure self-reported attribution or don't weight it appropriately. And so you got a bunch of people that are hearing about a company through a colleague, word of mouth, things like that. They go to Google, they land on the homepage, they convert on the demo page. If you ask them, how'd you hear about us? They would have said it was a referral, but we didn't ask. So then the company attributes that to SEO when in reality, a buyer just happened to pass through Google to get to where they already wanted to go. And so you question the overall impact there, right? But on the other hand, there are a lot of ways to get buyers onto the website through whatever way, right? A generic category level search, more of a long tail, quote unquote, top of funnel search. They get onto the website, then they enter retargeting flows. Maybe they convert on a newsletter and it can be a great way to start journeys. And so when you think about what skills an SEO needs to level up on, I think that a big part of it is having a deeper understanding of customers that allow you to more closely guide the actual like prioritization of the strategy, right? So maybe in, in a bit larger organization like yours, maybe someone else is responsible for that. I'm not sure. But having basically whenever you're in a specialized function, being able to broaden the scope of your view is always a good thing. So that could include customers, it could include data, it could include working with the sales team, just being able to broaden the scope gives you more visibility into what's happening in other cross-functional areas and allows you to better integrate those things into your job. On the idea of measuring SEO, I think this is a tough one. What I would do just off the cuff, like I haven't thought about this too much if I'm being honest with you, is that I would eliminate homepage visits from the tracking and I would eliminate all paid visits. So now it's just organic. And then I would be looking at some level of buyers that are entering the website for a what I would call a high intense search so that they're landing on your product page. They're landing on a place where they search like recruiting software or like, you know what I mean? Talent management system and they land on this page. Like I would look at that as one thing. How much high intent traffic are we converting or obtaining on our website organic when they search our key terms that we're probably paying for 25 bucks a click through Google right now, right? So that's one thing. And then I would be looking at whether it's like the blog, customer stories, PR releases, podcast transcripts, whatever the sort of like more high volume SEO strategy is, I'd be looking at number all the visitors that are entering there. And then if you're able to be able to have some correlation to the impact, a lot of times someone's going to go and get to the blog and they're going to leave. Maybe HubSpot cookies them. Maybe it's on a different device. So it's not like a perfect measurement there. I'd honestly probably be looking to drive more of the traffic in this like high intent bucket first, and then I'd be looking to scale volume. But I, I think one of the key things that I didn't even really think about until I just talked through it with you, so I appreciate the question, is actually breaking it into a high intent and a low intent bucket and measuring them separately. Okay, cool. What do you think? I'd love to hear what, yeah, I'd love to hear what you've been working or what, you know, how you react to that or what you think. I mean, 
for me, it was quite straightforward to go for, let's say, the demand capture where someone is already ready and, and looking for, like you said, looking for recruitment software. So they're already ready to buy it as the demand capture. But I was interested more also to know the demand gen itself, like like what is the the content, um, how we as SEOs can help to to generate demand at the end of the day. Um, so I think a light switch will go off here. In one man's opinion, other people would disagree with this, but it's my opinion that it's actually impossible to create demand via search because something had to have happened before someone went to search. So you can be focused on capturing the demand for the problem. Maybe they're at this level where they only understand the problem. They don't understand the solutions. They're not going to search that and capturing the demand that's been created to solve the problem that was... They saw it inside of their business. A colleague told them about it. They were in an event and people were talking about this problem. And so they decided to go and research it, right? Something happened even at a quote unquote top of funnel search that makes someone go to Google and actually type something in. So I would think about it more as capturing the demand for the key problems that you solve, the key product or value propositions that you have, things like that. Yeah, I would agree. Thanks for being here. We have another question. Um, it's more on the product marketing side of things. It's from our head of product marketing, Ashley. So Ashley, over to you. Hi. Yeah, excited to have you on here, Chris. Thanks for uh, doing this session with us. So I'm head of product marketing. So of course, I care a lot about uh, product launches. And I would say our product is definitely a huge value for us at Recruity. Our, our users really love it. We try to push people to trial as much as possible because they really get a lot of value out of uh, using the product. How do you see product launches fitting most effectively into a demand gen execution? So do you see this more as um, launches being integrated into a campaign or into content or more content and campaigns being centered around launches? What would you say would be the leading factor here? Or maybe there's a, a third option I'm not thinking of. Yeah, this is really great. So little like note tidbit. So like I started part of my career in product management where I owned both the technical side and the commercial side. So like product marketing and product management. I've gone through and like developed and launched a lot of products. Uh, and I've also worked on the demand gen side and as the leader. So I think I have a lot of experience to offer here. When you think about launches, mainly at the promotional side, right? So no, we're no pricing strategy. We're not going to get into that. It's merely on the promotional side. I think that as a business, you have recurring content pillars that are not necessarily about product launches. So that would be like my weekly live event, the podcast that we run, LinkedIn content, which is all basically just content from the podcast being repackaged and shared for micro distribution. So you have like this recurring thing. Then when a product launch comes, you're able to insert part of that into those recurring themes, but it's not the center of it, right? So that would be me going on my live event that's happening at noon today and announcing that we released a free trial offering for our one of our products, right? So that would be how I slot it in, but then I just continue the event as is. When it comes to the actual product launch, I think there's a ton of flexibility based on budgeting, importance to the company, growth goals, things like that. There's a lot of nuances here, but I'll offer like a interesting perspective and something that I've been thinking about a lot recently for our own business is having a basically a recurring pillar that is built for owned PR. So think about it as like, PR, but through your own channels, distributed on LinkedIn, on your website, places like that. 
which then when demonstrated effective can be moved into a paid PR strategy. So distributing PR uh, through LinkedIn ads to target accounts or paying for a spot in some newsletter or something like that. So you have a paid PR play. And then through those two things, you actually get earned. And that's when like Forbes features you or you go on CNN or something in a magazine, things like that. And so you kind of like, it's the same thing I did with LinkedIn in a podcast. Like I started and I did the thing and I distributed it on our own channels. And then all of a sudden people, we didn't actually do a ton of paid, but we will now that we're launching more products, right? And then through the owned, you actually earn a lot for free instead of just trying to start and go pay in an agency and try and get earned. And then the you have a recurring cadence of basically like product and business news. Hey, we just released this new feature. This customer just had really good success. And here's this customer. We just did this research in our lab and 7% of applicants do X, Y, and Z, right? So you can start to, you have like a recurring cadence of that is business oriented and product oriented that can then go through your proven distribution channels, which could be your CEO posting, maybe someone else, a recruiter on your team has a personal brand or things like that. So there's like that level of like digital content that'd be good. And then you have so much flexibility on if you want to go like big lightning strike one day, company LinkedIn takeover, we have this great like video and we're gonna have everyone push it like customer event that gets broadcasted live. And then you broadcast that on LinkedIn live to a bunch of other people, but only customers get to come to the event physically. There's so many options when it comes to product launches that is really like the fun and creativity of marketing, but would love to go a little bit back and forth, right? I went in several different directions, but let's go like, I guess, uh, do you have any follow-up questions or things that we could, well, I guess, what were you thinking? Yeah, well, no, I mean, that, that's great. And I think what we're doing for product launches now, I would say maybe they're more feature launches. We're still sort of rolling out some, uh, not smaller features, but maybe not to like what a product launch would be, as in like a separate uh, actual product. But I do find that we're very still stuck in sort of the, here's our product, not like what problems are we solving? How could we be a little bit more agile and creative and how we're doing product launches as well and getting the rest of the marketing team involved. You know, as a product marketing team, of course, we know our product really well, but how can we distribute that information? So it's not just about the product launch itself, like the day of, but also it's integrated into a lot of other content, different types of forms. You know, if SEO is writing a blog, they know what to include in there automatically. So uh, I guess we're just looking at how can we make a bigger impact just in general and on an ongoing basis. Yeah, to get like real practical, I would just break this down to content and distribution. In this scenario, let's say that you actually own the content or someone on your team, right? And then I would think about like if I'm going to launch this new feature, what is what are the elements of content, right? And it can vary by feature or you can create some level of a framework where it's repeatable. I would have like a 30-second hype video, I would have a blog press release with a quote from our head of product or CEO or a customer. I would have a customer story or a customer interview or some level of social proof from a like a beta customer or someone, someone on your customer advisory board. Maybe and I would have maybe a product or a feature page that goes into more detail, something like that. So that's like the content set. And then you're gonna methodically push that set of content out 
via pro like whatever proven distribution channels that you have. So like I just basically explained to you how I would launch one back. This is a play that I did in 2017 and it worked amazing and it would still work today because it's this the way that the con it's just a simple content and distribution framework. So then I would take those assets and then the first one maybe would be the press release. And then the next one might be the um, hype video. And then the next one might be the customer testimonial. And then the last one might be the product page. So it's sequenced and maybe it's one per week. And so then on a Monday, I'm gonna like push this thing out via my email list. And then it's going to go on organic social. And then two hours later, I'm going to boost that to all of our target accounts or customers or whatever the targeting is. I'm going to boost that on LinkedIn ads or Facebook and Instagram or something like that. Maybe the hype video, I'm going to use retargeting. So anyone that visits our website, I'm going to retarget them on YouTube with the 30 second hype video. And I just push it and then like the next week goes and I'm going to do the hype video on organic, then social, then and you just go through and then over a month, You've had like a set of con it's only four pieces of content, but you've stretched it out through distribution. And then the goal being in a product launch that every one of the your everyone in your relevant market knows that you launched the feature, right? Like that's the goal of the product launch. So th this level of just like educational content that sort of builds more into promotional, but not salesy, and then moving through some level of or organic and paid distribution mix, I have found to be highly effective. Yeah, great. Thanks. Yeah, super helpful. And I think that's what we're going to focus on in the future as well. I would say distribution from the product marketing team has been a bit of our uh, weak side. That Yeah, that should be your demand gen teams. Should 100% be yeah, integrated yeah. campaigns or demand gen teams responsibility. Like your demand gen team should be able to tell you this is exactly how we're going to reach everyone in our target customer base to create demand. Great. Thanks. Hey, good chat. Thanks for being on here. Thank you, Ashley. And um, yeah, as uh, many of you in this call know, we're soon launching a, a very excited feature. So we're going to be the first ATS with AI. So Ashley, I think we have just built the playbook together with Chris. Over to the next question. Uh, this is a question uh, from Alexander, our marketing director. And he would like to ask his question via video. Hey, Alexander. Hey, Chris. Uh, thanks for uh, being here. I'm, uh, I'm already on the uh, edge of my seat. <laughs> Very uh, valuable intel up until now. Um, my question about short-term versus long-term. As Anna mentioned, we've uh, kicked off our uh, demand-gen journey. But meanwhile, the organization is also screaming for short-term results, right? Short-term goals. And I would like to see our demand-gen journey as a long-term strategy. And we as a team would also like to get a grip on are we on track or not on the rather short term to see if there's any positive signal. So my question is, how would you kind of balance uh, building a long-term demand generation structure with achieving short-term goals? I've found that there's a lot of confusion between the idea that short-term behaviors drive short-term results and that long-term behaviors don't drive short-term results, right? So a lot of people think like, if I want short-term results, I have to put a call to action, a book a meeting with our sales team in there, or I have to run a lead gen strategy because I'm able to do something and then get a metric out straight away. 
But in my experience, that's usually not how it goes. Long-term behaviors drive better short-term results and short-term behaviors pump up vanity metrics, but don't actually drive results. So this goes back to the one of the topics we talked about before is like level setting with the company on what are the goals and what are the leading indicators, right? If the goal or leading indicator is 5,000 MQLs, then you're not going to have a lot of success trying to shift to a demand end strategy. Or maybe you are because your company allocates enough budget to get the 5,000 MQLs and also go out and pursue the long-term strategy. At your size, like it's going back to the thing that I mentioned at the beginning and being able to analyze all the different lead gen programs, seeing which ones are working that we could either continue. Maybe you got like some non-branded search terms in Google. You have some affiliate stuff. You have like this newsletter thing that's converting well. You probably have some things that are quote unquote lead gen or better framed probably in this instance as demand capture, some demand capture things that are working. The difference between demand capture and lead gen, by the way, is demand capture is converting someone that already has shown intent to buy. And lead gen is getting an email address, most likely with no intent to buy. So you could probably just look logically and say, which one of these are demand capture? like I mentioned, paid search, affiliates, maybe some newsletter things, things like that, that are converting well, let's keep doing them or figure out how to invest more money to make them work even better. And then we have this whole bucket of what are these probably lead gen programs that are not driving any impact. Let's look at the data. Let's demonstrate they're not driving any impact. Let's agree as an organization that these things are not driving the outcomes that we want. Let's recoup that budget and let's go use that budget on new things that could be our quote unquote demand or uh, I don't even like calling it a long term strategy, because I don't think that it like, there's a difference between thinking long term, like acting long term, and being complacent or not driving results. And I don't think that they're one in the same. And then being able to get the company on board with, and maybe we can talk through it together here. On if we're trying to drive more pipeline through our website, or if the goal is to drive more pipeline in our set of tier one target accounts or our strategic accounts or our enterprise accounts, regardless of where they come in, whether they come in through the website, SDR, events, it doesn't matter. We're just running, a, let's just drive this many accounts as a revenue team, whatever the goal is, then figuring out how do we bring our programs to go out and match that outcome. The target account strategy is very simple. Let's go out and target these accounts through a variety of tactics and measure the impact of those. And then on the leading indicator side, you need to sort of, like I mentioned, work back from the programs, right? So the leading indicators are going to be different if you're running a like heavy LinkedIn ABM ad, LinkedIn ABM ad strategy versus running a physical event strategy in 26 different cities in the US, right? So the leading indicators would be different by program. As I talked through it, I had never thought about this before, but a lot of companies use website traffic or number of branded organic searches or things like that as surrogate measures for how well it's doing, right? If it's going up, we're probably doing good. If it's going down, we're probably not doing well. But it doesn't take into account market fluctuations and it doesn't give you any insight into if our organic traffic is going up, then why is it going up? So I know I didn't give you a complete answer there. I was sort of just like throwing out some thoughts because I figured we would have a back and forth a little bit. So would love to hear what your reaction is or what you were thinking of doing. Yeah, I'm connecting the dots as we speak. But you would say leading indicators should be tied to programs at all times. If you want to also see those early on positive signals that you're on the, on the right track. 
Yeah, like for instance, like we have a, sh- a weekly sheet that we're looking at in the marketing leadership meeting that's tracking how many podcast downloads did we get last week? How many LinkedIn impressions did we get last week from me, the company page, and seven other people that matter in our company? And so how many LinkedIn impressions did we get? Well, how much we do look at website traffic, right? As an interesting leading indicator. We look at how many people visited our main conversion page on our website. We measure the conversion rate of how many people went to the page and then converted on a weekly basis. Those become the leading indicators for us. It's like the key measurements of the programs and then the connection point between the programs and conversions or pipeline. Yeah. Yeah, because right now for us, it's it's mainly all in on SQL and, and pipeline while we're also investing in certain programs that have a bit of a longer turnaround time. Mm-hmm. We're going to want to get to that situation where you also kind of look at those engagement metrics that you at least have a feeling, hey, it's worth investing in these because they're yeah. eventually going to materialize and, and tie that. You said you have some experimental or more long-term programs. Like, Let's talk through an example of one of them that you've been doing, and then maybe we can help you come up with some metrics. Yeah, well, we're now looking into starting a podcast again. We're going to tie that also to uh, campaigns and, and teams we're currently setting up. So that's going to be something new for us. That's probably not going to be reflected on in the SQLs, but it's something we're investing time and resources, money, budget uh, into. So yeah, how we're going to justify that, that's kind of a big question mark. Uh, I want to see something at least that uh, it's worth investing into. It doesn't have to be in the self-reported attribution as of yet as podcast, podcast, podcast. But so what are those other in-between leading indicators to see, hey, this is worth it? Yeah, so a little follow-up from me then, Chris. So, because uh, that would be on my team then, the podcast. So let's uh, <laughs> let's get Alexander on board. So in the beginning, did you just look at engagement metrics, like how well is your content performing and not per se on what kind of leads that did, uh, did it get out of it? And do you still look at that with the whole uh, marketing leadership team? Yeah, let's talk through it. So right, it's easy now looking back. I started the podcast, what, almost three years ago, right? Uh, More than three years ago. So it's easy looking back now that we see 56% of revenue comes from the podcast and self-reported attribution. Like it's easy now to say, yeah, the podcast was worth it. But if you go back to April of 2020, when we started it, the I didn't need to justify the impact of the podcast to myself for this one reason is that the podcast is combined with a live event for prospective customers and it creates all the content that goes downstream on LinkedIn, YouTube, TikTok, and other places, right? So I think about the podcast initially as a content creation mechanism that allows us to also run a live event if we choose. And so instead of measuring it against revenue results, I'm measuring it against, are we creating a great event? Are we having good output? And is it feeding downstream social networks that might make an impact faster than a podcast? Because user acquisition in a podcast just takes longer than in social networks where you have much broader organic reach. Actually getting your podcast to drive an impact by taking that content and moving it into a TikTok or a YouTube or a LinkedIn or email even, right? Any of those places, you taking it into a downstream distribution mechanism will allow you to get the results faster. If you think about it, like I'm using this to create content and run a recurring event strategy, it becomes re- like really easy to justify financially because if you look at the cost of 
writing a blog or building a case study, then the podcast typically is going to come in as quote unquote, less expensive than other content creation mechanisms. Thanks. Yeah, very valuable. We have another question that's kind of related. It's from Gautier. Um, he's uh, at, from Javlo, which is one of our sisters. Hi, thanks, Chris, for sharing some insights with us. For me, my question is, um, obviously, we want to move to Team Engine. And one of the things we need to do together is uh, remove, basically, all gated contents and uh, move to freely accessible contents. But at this point, getting uh, people to submit a form to uh, get an ebook or stuff like this is a way for us to track leads uh, with HubSpot and then do some lead scoring and stuff like this. So my question is, should we still keep a balance and uh, still have uh, opportunities to get some info about the leads and start tracking them? Or do you think, no, you need to be completely like radical and just forget this and uh, move full dimension? So when I get asked the question or told that in order to run a demand gen strategy, I need to not gate my content, it's actually a little bit more subtle than that, which is that in order to move to a demand gen strategy, I need to change the definition of how I measure the effectiveness of programs, how I think about leading indicators, et cetera, right? It's possible that you have some gated content that becomes the initial part of a journey for a buyer that you get total a million ARR a year from a couple of key pieces of gated content, right? It could be the first touch on a long deal. Maybe you win one enterprise deal from it because they, they buy differently. It's possible that there's something happening there. So to just remove it philosophically, like we need to remove all gated content, I actually don't think is the right approach. I think it's looking at all of your business data and then making an educated decision of, should we actually do this or not? Do we actually need to think about a phase transition where we leave all the stuff that's currently been published gated, but now we start moving new stuff to different distribution? Could we leave the content gated for an SEO strategy, but then take the PDF, repackage it into videos and animations and carousels and things like that and distribute them on LinkedIn, even while it's still gated? All those options are available. So I have a level of respect and empathy for that you you're it's already a mature it's a developed growing business you know what I mean so like hard changes on these things into an existing system can fluctuate the system so I wouldn't necessarily say blindly remove gated content I would say analyze the business data you can look at Marketo or Abysable and say did if there was any touch on this gated conversion that aligned to revenue then you can look and say, okay, which which ones were there? Were there any? How much were they? Is it worth it? Which ones are not doing that? Should we? And then you just make a like sort of a case by case decision uh, versus a blanket decision. And then thinking about moving forward, like what is the overall strategy? Are we comfortable taking these insights and releasing them in different mediums across social networks where we have less tracking? Are we not because we're relying on lead scoring? Another thing about lead scoring is like if you look at how many people converted on an ebook and then hit some level of an MQL score? What was the outcome of those leads that got past SDRs? It's probably not great, but looking at the data and seeing it for yourself, you might actually say the data is showing it's not helping our sales team, so we could get rid of it. But the general point here is that it's nuanced. If you're building it from the ground up, right? If you're a three person startup, and you just raised a million bucks and now you're like hiring your like $150,000 a year head of marketing and you want to start and not do a not have a gated content strategy, then 
it's great. But in an existing business, I think we need to be more thoughtful about the analytics and if and how we make the transition. Yeah, so run uh, experiments with the content you currently have gated, leave it gated, but distribute it in different ways to see what traction you get from it and look at your programs where the intent on the actual conversions come from. Yeah, the key things about not gating content is it changes what type of content you create, it changes what mediums that you created in, and it changes where you distribute it. And so, but you could achieve all three of those outcomes while still leaving the current PDFs gated, right? It's just about taking the information, repackaging it, distributing it somewhere, and not driving someone back with a link to say, hey, come download my ebook. It's just giving, getting the information distributed elsewhere. You could do that while still using a gated strategy if the business needed to support that. Maybe just quickly another question regarding repurposing, actually. So let's say we only have a team of two people for content, which is my case. What do you think should be the balance between uh, like the ratio between creating new content because we still have an ACO strategy to run and repurposing what we already have at hand? to push it to other channels? What would be a sort of rules of thumb? Yeah, so uh, just to be clear, you work at a smaller subsidiary sister company, so a smaller team overall, but for like separation and freedom and flexibility from the larger company, yeah, if I'm understanding correctly. So yeah, you got a two-person marketing team. I would have one person on the team that is, I don't know who you're selling to, if you're selling to recruiters or heads of TA or chief people officers, I'm not sure, but if that's the case, then like you need to have one of the marketers or someone at your company that fits that profile be the host of a podcast and then create a podcast event strategy. So that's the content creation framework that I just mentioned. So you're, now you're creating this content. You can get it outsourced for like videos on LinkedIn or TikTok. So you outsource the video production for a couple thousand dollars a month. Then you have a distribution stream onto one or two social networks. You then like that whole thing, one person should be able to run that whole machine. And then you have another person that's focused on either net new SEO content, if that's the chosen strategy, or being able to take the content that's being created and then repackage and convert it to fit the SEO strategy. So that could be pulling out the podcast, optimizing the title, putting the transcripts in, like putting some commentary or doing a write-up on an interview, like we're doing this interview right now. Somebody could feasibly take this interview and then write a blog post about all the things that we talked about here and SEO optimize something like that with the video. That would be the strategy with a two-person team that I would take. I don't think that you necessarily need to think about the balance between creation and repurposing. You can only really repurpose if you create in the first place. So being able to have a consistent creation framework, then it just allows you to repurpose and repackage whatever is available at the volume that you choose in the places that you choose, right? You could have a super complex repurposing and repackaging strategy for like 10 channels, but that probably doesn't make sense given the resources and size that you are right now. So I'd have the step one creation and then step two, like one to two places about repackaging, which is probably gonna be LinkedIn and search in your case. TikTok could work too. Like, I don't know exactly the target customer, especially for the subsidiary, but like for recruiters or like individual contributor people on the people team, like there's a lot of scale there. If uh, created in the right way, that topic of content could get really popular on TikTok. Yeah, thanks a lot, Chris. I think we have time for one uh, question. 
is also, uh, yeah, of course, related to what we already discussed, but we do uh, see a lot of difference in our effectiveness in our experiments that we're currently running in, for example, the US, which is maybe a bit more mature market in demand gen versus, for example, the dock region, which is also heavily focused still on digitization processes and everything. So they also ask for, for example, hey, do you have a PDF for this or that? How do you view that in your experience? Is, is there a difference in the effectiveness of demand gen in different markets? And are certain markets like still, still tied to more traditional buyer behavior? What's your view on that? Mm, I think there are some universal trends that happen across the board. And then I'm sure that there are nuances in for so many different variables, whether it's region or seniority or age of the person who's buying or the company that they work for, or whether you use Slack or Teams, or whether you use Salesforce or HubSpot, there's probably like so many variables that could drive individual changes. But I think there are some global factors that are basically happening across the board in B2B, which is that B2B buyers trust their peers more than anybody else that they are able to access those peers over the internet, whether that's through text messages, communities, social networks, live events, things like that, where they're able to access peers and then collect the information that they want rather than going to Google. They can go and ask three CMOs what tool they use for this, and they can get better insights from that. People want to predominantly buy independently. They want to have information available that they can share with the buying group that they can use to influence decision making and being able to empower your buyer to do those things independently without needing a sales rep is super powerful. People want to be able to, in many cases, get into the product or try it in some way, whether that's at a low cost, whether it's at a validation or a free trial or something like that. There are some trends that seem to be happening almost across the board. When it comes to like the US versus individual regions of Europe, I actually believe this is driven more because of the level of competition and market size than it actual buyer behavior. I've worked with many companies that are based in the UK or Belgium or Germany or Sweden or those types of places that have a great motion happening in some individual regions of Europe because they have higher brand awareness. It's a lower priority market for a lot of companies and there's less competition overall. So no one, yeah, they're, they're and they are native to that region. So they probably have salespeople that speak those languages. There's so many reasons why they'd be more successful there. And they go and take that and they try and go to the US where instead of having two competitors, they have 10. There's a bunch of entrenched technology. There's pricing pressure. A lot of those companies have local sales teams so that they have advantages in, in overall footprint and go to market. And typically, those companies from Europe that are coming into the UN, US also don't invest appropriately to the US market. They spend $75,000 a month in dock, and then they go over and they spend $10,000 a month to run a test in the US. I think those are the real reasons why some companies especially European-based companies have more challenges in the US. It's due to competition, brand awareness, category maturity, localization, things like that. Asking for a friend, but would you recommend, for example, doing your experiments or trying to get your go-to-market work in the US in certain regions? So define, so we are a product that is suitable, our ICP is scaling companies, mainly tech companies uh, is a good fit. So we are now looking at, for example, going into uh, more tech hubs like Austin and do 
a targeted experience there versus trying to target the whole country, which is A, expensive and B, not really efficient. Yeah. What, would you recommend approaching it like that? Yeah. So this is effectively what some people call a super consumer strategy in B2C or category design, which is basically historically has been geo-based based on word of mouth, right? So if I'm a internet company or a subscription box company or something like that, I'm going to go and I'm going or Uber, right? I'm going to go into New York City or I'm going to pick a region and I'm going to dominate that region until I reach scale. And then I'm going to replicate that in other markets. Then the whole driver is that the cluster of people creates word of mouth that will lower cost of acquisition as we get more customers. I think the difference in B2B tech is that the word of mouth is not geo-based necessarily, right? There are some markets where obviously San Francisco, Chicago, Austin, there are some markets where it would make sense to do a strategy like this. But I think that there's actually probably a better segmentation model than geo in order to get the same impact, which is what you want, which is I want to get a bunch of people to become customers and then fuel word of mouth with people that are like them who have identified as super consumers. So some of the tactical things might include going to the to certain geos, but it's because the segment that you choose has presence in multiple geos because you segmented as a the primary method of segmentation is not geographical. So center it around your champion customers that you're going to acquire in those regions. It could be effective as well. Yeah. Yeah. So f- I'll give you a couple of examples just to make this more clear. So like one could be like, when we're going to the US, we really win if they're using this tool that's going to integrate with our tool. And so our strategy is not going to be target San Francisco. It's going to be target all customers that use this tool that we know we have a high propensity to win when integrated. That would be one example. And then you probably then those people could be in multiple different regions. Uh, But the idea is that maybe that tool has a big community. And so if we're able to get customers with that tool and then people are asking questions in the community and they ask about how this integration or this tool works and they're going to refer us, right? So you're looking for like a centralized place of high propensity customers that aggregate to fuel word of mouth, which can be geographical, but could be other places too. Great. Well, to wrap it up, I mean, we can talk about this topic for days, but first of all, thank you, Chris. Uh, Very inspiring and very, very valuable. What I was wondering, and many people with me, because it also came in in the questions up front, you were pretty spot on, like predicting changing B2B buyer behavior five years ago. So looking at the future, how will demand gen and marketing change in the coming like five to 10 years? What do you think? So I think that there are a few undeniable trends that are happening. I mentioned a couple earlier, but I think the biggest elephant in the room is product-led growth. And so I think that there's a massive trend about buyers wanting to be able to use a product, whether they're an individual contributor or whether the the CMO, but a lot of individual contributors want to be able to get into the tool, use the product, experience it before they go sign a 30K ACV contract or 100K ACV contract. And they want to be able to do that on their own without interacting with a sales rep, which if done correctly, is better for the buyer and better for the company in terms of cost of acquisition and cost of service. And when you move into that level of emotion, then the responsibility and the accountability of the marketing team becomes significantly higher when sales is doing product-led sales and strategic accounts only that we need to have a company that has 25 users in our product before our sales team goes and activates. People say product-led growth. It's really 
product and marketing led growth. If you just build the product and nobody hears about it or nobody thinks how to get there or nobody experiences it, it's not going to be that effective. I get that people can have growth loops and stuff like that, but really it's marketing and product led. That's one of the most exciting things because it brings, especially if you're in a self-service motion, it brings marketers basically you're in a it's like a B2C e-commerce play at that point. Marketing needs to drive revenue. Marketing needs to drive new customer acquisition at an acceptable customer acquisition cost, which right now they're not fully accountable to because the sales team is accountable to it. And then there's like a balance and things like that. So this basically centers marketing on it. Hey, we need to drive this much self-service subscription revenue. We need to drive this many PQAs or something like that. So I I, uh, I really like that trend for the ele- the overall elevation of impact and responsibility for B2B marketers. Another one that I'll mention is I think that the continued evolution of dark social and the continued evolution of privacy policies and other things that are going to restrict data and things like that are going to heavily impact B2B marketers, which is better for buyers and not as strong for and worse for marketers, which will force marketing teams to be far more customer centric and look far more at qualitative and quantitative primary customer research as a method for strategy versus just data and attribution. So also about building brand IP then? With your building your yeah, I think that every company now needs to have some level of a, especially a SaaS company where there's so much data, you have to have some level of a lab where you are pulling, looking at aggregated data, pulling out insights, and reporting on those insights as a thought leader in the market. Clary does a great job at this. We do a really strong job at this, and I think that every company has an opportunity to produce unique differentiated, non-obvious insights that AI is not going to be able to come up with and different things like that, that you're bringing new ideas into the market based on data that you have proprietary, I think would will be a huge thing for companies in the coming years. If you look back the past five years, it's been every company needs a community. I think the next five years is every company is going to need a like data analytics lab that surfaces non-obvious insights. Nice. Thanks. Yeah, I can't say how happy I am with this session. It was fantastic. Thanks for making the time for us. Really appreciate it. For you, have a great day. Uh, For the people here in Amsterdam, have a great evening and um, hope to see you soon. Thanks, Anne. Thanks, everyone, for being here. Really, really enjoyed the session and uh, hope it was valuable to you all. So thank you and have a great evening. 100%. Thanks, Chris. 